You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. There was a time when scientists thought they knew what was in the universe. You had your stars and planets organized into galaxies. In between, you had a smidgen of gas and dust and a whole lot of empty space. Close to nothingness. Nearly zilcho. But about 50 years ago, all of that was about to change. In the 1960s, astronomers were studying galaxies, and they were quite unaware of the fact that they were about to stumble upon a big mystery. I'm Anil Anantaswamy, author of The Edge of Physics. Okay, so the astronomers in the 1960s were busy filling in the details about what they knew about how stars move around in galaxies. They were really interested in understanding the motion of stars around the center of the galaxy. And when you think of our solar system, for instance, the velocity of the planets follow a very simple law, Kepler's law. The farther out in the solar system you are, the slower your speed around the sun. If you're four times farther out, you orbit two times slower. Mercury, which is the closest to the sun, moves the fastest. And as you go further away from the sun, the planets start moving slower and slower, all the way to Pluto. And astronomers were studying galaxies to see if the stars were doing the same thing around the center of the galaxy. Those stars should be moving fast, and away from the center, they should be moving slower, that's all. But the astronomers didn't actually determine the speeds of all the stars. They would really not do any measurements of the stars that were further and further away from the center of the galaxy. They would essentially just assume that these stars were going to be slowing down. They took it for granted that since most of the mass of the galaxy was near its center, the stars farther out would follow Kepler's law and be orbiting slower. What the astronomers were doing was quite common in science, which is to... Take a law that you've seen being true in a certain set of circumstances and then assume that it holds in a different set of circumstances. And in this case, they were taking a law that was very obviously true within our solar system, applying it to a galaxy, expecting it to hold true, and it turned out that they were wrong. And then... An astronomer called Vera Rubin came along. But before she came along, and what she'd built on, were observations made by other astronomers. Seth Shostak, yes, our own Seth Shostak, together with David Rogstad, were studying the motion of the gas between the stars. What did you find, Seth? Well, what we found was that in some galaxies, the gas in the outer reaches orbited just as quickly as the gas closer in. The gas didn't seem to obey Kepler's law. Okay, back to Vera Rubin. She was mapping the motions of stars far from the center of the Andromeda galaxy. She realized that there was something unusual. 
the velocities were not dropping. As Kepler's law said they would. In fact, all the way to the very visible edge of the galaxy, the stars were moving just as fast as they were at the center of the galaxy. She had no explanation for it, but she knew that what she was seeing was real. Something, more mass, more something, was having a strange effect on galaxies. This was the beginning of our understanding that there must be a lot of mass that exists in the galaxy that is holding together these stars. Otherwise, the entire galaxy would have flown apart. And this came to be called dark matter. Dark matter. Well, what else to call this substance that was unseen, yet had a gravitational tug, just like ordinary matter? The discovery of dark matter changed our entire understanding of the universe. But what kind of person has that much confidence in their own scientific research to go against the grain of the predominant mode of thinking? You have to believe in what you're doing and know that you're doing it right. And then when you see the data not matching up to the expectations of the time, you should have the confidence to stand up and say, okay, we're right in what we have measured. We know this is the case. Now somebody has to explain it. Breakthroughs don't happen often in science, but when they do, usually hard work, persistence, and luck are involved. And, well, maybe thinking different. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and on Big Picture Science, what happens when researchers take a view that is orthogonal to the usual way of doing things? Yes, I said orthogonal. Most people would have said perpendicular. And could the art of metaphor help us understand arcane scientific concepts and steer our ship of discovery to new lands? Or just leave us as confused as... A snake at a garden hose convention. Also, we'll hear why pi, you know... 3.14159265... Is wrong, wrong, I say. Imagine setting up a wet lab in your garage, right there between the car, the lawnmower, and that unappetizing box of kitty litter. A wet lab, that is a laboratory that involves wet substances, drugs, chemicals, and biological matter. And in this wet lab, at home, next to the leaf blower and the drill press, you take a sample of your own DNA and begin tinkering. Are you qualified to do biotechnology? Nope. Well, how about synthetic biology, where you mix and match genes, including your own? Uh Uh-uh. Well, turns out that this is a happy hobby even if you can't flash an advanced degree in genetics because in the world of biopunk, no experience is required. Biopunk, it used to be a subgenre of science fiction that referred to a weird science of the future, says Marcus Wilson, a reporter for the Associated Press and author of a book on the subject. Today, biopunk, well, it's... People who are trying to do biology for themselves. And by that, I mean approaching biology and biotech outside of the traditional institutions where it's done, uh, universities, corporate laboratories. These are people who are trying to figure out how to do biotech at home. As they say, we're trying to figure out how to domesticate biotechnology. Okay, so these are people doing biology in the privacy of their own homes, and we're not talking here about, you know, making babies or anything like that. We're talking about uh, doing the kind of biotech things that you usually envision going on in a big biotech research firm. That's exactly right. Now, of course, one of the main reasons that people do biotech in a large research firm or at a university is because you need a lot of resources, or at least that's the assumption that's made, in order to be able to do anything worthwhile. So a big part of what the biopunk movement is trying to achieve is to figure out how to make doing biology cheaper. And that's where this do-it-yourself sensibility comes in. It's Can I build a cheaper piece of laboratory equipment? Can I take something that I've already got in my kitchen and use it? One of the people I write about in my book, for instance, she's trying to create a genetic circuit 
But instead of going out to some kind of biological supply company to get what she needs, she's using bacteria that she's cultured from yogurt that she bought at Trader Joe's. Oh, well, well, suppose I wanted to do this. I wanted to become a, a biopunk, I don't know, maybe a hack DNA in, in my own home. Uh, what would I have to put in my garage in order to be able to do that? What, what sort of equipment would I need? I don't have a lab like this set up myself, but the kinds of things I see people using, they use hot plates, they use pressure cookers. I've seen dish soap and bottles of vodka in some of these labs. There's not a strict list of items that you need. But, but, but I notice you haven't mentioned anything that you know costs more than a few hundred bucks yet. There are certain limits to what you can do with what I've described. And so another thing that is encouraging people to think that this is possible is that there are lots of things you can do now to outsource a lot of the work that traditionally happens in biology labs. If you want to get DNA sequenced, there are services that will provide that for you. If you want to get new sequences of DNA, you can go to websites like mrgene.com or uh, DNA 2.0. You can type in the letters that form the genetic code for the project that you're working on, and you can get a test tube back in the mail with those custom genes. Well, can we take an example? I mean, imagine a guy or gal in their garage hacking into a, a genome, maybe some microbe or something. They're, they're trying to make something that will you know, impress their friends or impress themselves. Yeah, give me an example of that because uh, I'd like to try and picture what sort of thing they're doing in there. Okay. I'll tell you the story of Meredith Patterson, and she's actually the first biopunk who I ever met, and she turns out to be one of the smartest and most articulate folks about this movement as well. I went up to meet her, didn't know what to expect went into her apartment, and she had her wet lab sitting there on the table. She had a hot plate. She had these yogurt containers. She had sort of a jerry-rigged version of a thermal cycler, which is kind of a glorified crock pot that is, in fact, the essential tool in every modern biotech lab that's used to replicate DNA. She also had some genes that she had ordered online, not custom, but just from a, a biological supply company, very cheap. And these are genes that come from jellyfish. And what they do is they create a protein that allows the jellyfish to glow fluorescent green. So what Meredith was trying to do was she was trying to hack these jellyfish genes into the bacteria that is in every tub of yogurt that ferments the milk that makes the yogurt. But why is she wanting to do this? I mean, right. is it just to make yogurt that glows in the dark? Is it, <laughs> I mean, is it just to impress people at a cocktail party? I mean, is there something beyond just the satisfaction of being able to do it? What Meredith was doing was she was trying to create a cheap user-friendly, consumer-grade, DNA-based test to monitor the world's dairy supply. This was around Christmas in 2008, and at that time, China was mired in a scandal over infant formula that was tainted with the toxic compound melamine, which is actually used to make plastics. And the tests for melamine, the tests that you would have to use to determine if the food supply was tainted, involve using a mass spectrometer. It's sort of a big, bulky, expensive piece of equipment. It's not something that you're going to have in your home at all. But Meredith's thinking was a mother who's sitting there staring at a bottle of formula needs to know right away whether that bottle of formula has poison in it. So, you know, what is she going to do? She wanted to create a test for the melamine toxin. And the idea, at least, is that you can have just a little test tube that has this novel organism in it. You put a few drops of formula in, and if it has the melamine in it, it sets off that bacteria and then it glows in the dark. So the purpose of this was actually quite serious. Now, the jellyfish gene into the yogurt bacteria, that's the easy part. The melamine sensor that triggers it, that is the engineering problem that still needs to be solved. What about the young woman who was uh, interested in 
finding out more about her own DNA. Well, her story is really interesting because it wasn't just curiosity in her case. It actually came from a, a very serious health issue that had come up in her family. Her name is Kay All. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I wouldn't describe her as an amateur per se in the sense that some of the other folks are who are, are doing this kind of thing. She graduated from MIT in their bioengineering program. She was actually the first graduate from that program a few years ago. While this was going on, her father, who comes from a, a line of men on that side of the family who tended to die at a fairly young age, so he monitored his health very closely. When he turned 60, his doctors told him that his liver enzyme count was high, and they said, well, maybe you should stop drinking alcohol. That didn't have any effect on those enzymes. He started complaining that he felt like he had sand in his joints. And so the doctor said, okay, well, we really need to figure out what's going on with you. So they gave him a blood test, and as she tells it, they stuck him with a needle, and the technician immediately said, oh, no. And his blood was the, as thick as pancake syrup. And what he had was a disorder called hemochromatosis, which is a genetic disorder that inhibits the body's ability to absorb iron. And if you don't treat it at all, it will kill you in the end. But what she was doing was trying to determine whether she had a genetic predisposition to this disease. Exactly. I mean, you can, you can do that. You can have your, your DNA sequence, and it's uh, getting cheaper all the time very quickly. But, you know, you don't have to do this yourself. Why, why was she trying to do it herself? Well, no, it's true that it is getting cheaper quickly, but it's, it's kind of amazing how steep that curve has been. Uh, this was actually in uh, 2008, I think, that she was first doing this work. And it would have been much more expensive even then to send her DNA out to get scanned. So... She said, then I'm going to make a test myself. She spat in a vial. She isolated her own DNA. She ran the test, and she got a real result. She discovered that she did have one of these mutations that meant that she has something around a 50% chance of, of getting the disease. Well, Marcus, this brings up the, maybe the bigger question. Uh, it's truly impressive that somebody could do in their own closet, in this case, something that, you know, normally would require the facilities of a, a fairly large organization, diagnosing her own DNA or at least examining it. Uh, but in general, these biopunks, you know, are they doing something that professional scientists are not doing? I mean, is, is there value in that in terms of somebody who's not a biopunk? I think there's a real strong desire among a lot of people doing this to do things that do have broad social value. Some guys who built a pocket thermal cycler, a DNA replicator that's about the size of a couple iPhones stacked one on top of the other. And their thinking is that, again, if you can make these tools cheap, if you can create simple recipes for doing basic biotech and get that to places that don't have these tools, that don't have this knowledge, then people can start using biotech in places for problems where it doesn't exist right now. It sounds like they might, in fact, be important in getting new technology out there. I have to say, Marcus, this sounds more and more to me like the electronics revolution that occurred after the Second World War. Once anyone could order tubes or transistors from a supply house or capacitors and coils, well, anyone could build their own radios, their own TVs, their own hi-fis. So are we going to see a burgeoning of biology hobbyism with magazines featuring the uh, synthesis creature of the month or something like that? I mean, I, I don't see those on the newsstand yet. A creature of the month, we might be a little ways away from that. But there are certainly similarities. And there's certainly a big part of this is a, a desire to try to make biotech 
more like electronics, more like computer science, more like any other engineering field. Let's standardize the parts. Let's create standard ways that they fit together. And if we do that, then designing genes can become just like, say, designing transistors. But as we all know, and I think kind of feel even instinctively, biology is different. And it, and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable to talk about biology like it's any other kind of engineering because, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about life. Well, and, well, well, that brings up the big question for me because if I'm a do-it-yourself electronics nut, and honestly, I was, I am, <laughs> nothing I build is going to threaten people in the next county, let alone in the next country. But, you know, what if these, one of these DNA hackers, these biopunks, produces a pathogen, something that could cause a worldwide epidemic? Uh, this sounds to me like hobbyism with a different uh, footprint. Well, it sounds kind of like where somebody with a computer could design a computer virus. This is a field where somebody could design a real virus. The truth of the matter is at this point, it's really, really hard to do something like that. Kay All, who I told you about, who designed the, the DNA test for herself, facetiously said during a presentation, I couldn't kill you all even if I wanted to. The science simply isn't there yet for somebody in their garage to, from scratch, piece together some kind of superbug that's going to get out into the environment and wreak havoc. Marcus Wilson, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Biopunk, DIY Scientists Hack the Software of Life is reporter Marcus Wilson's book about do-it-yourself biotechnology. Coming up, <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad scientist that usually steals the scene in Hollywood. But in the laboratory, is madness really required to make the big breakthroughs? We're thinking outside the rectangular container on big picture science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. In the 1931 film Frankenstein, the doctor may have lost his mind. It's alive, it's alive. Now I know what it feels like to be gone. Yes, your archetypal mad scientist. White lab coat, flyaway hair, an effervescing test tube, beakers bubbling with who knows what. And a singular plan to take over the world. <laughs> that was good, Gary, really evilly. Are you sure you don't want a little more? <laughs> no. Or maybe a... <laughs> no, no. 
Or how about a little more of a cackle? No, with that evil laugh, I was convinced that you would make good on your diabolical plan to detonate a secret weapon using advanced technology that has yet to be invented, but which you, with your preternatural genius and despite the lack of any modern equipment, perfected in your rudimentary stonewalled basement so that you could advance your plans for world domination, which is actually thinly veiled revenge for the pain you suffered when in your youth, your awkwardly protruding teeth and compulsion to crossbreed insects with small rodents caused you to be ridiculed by classmates and shunned by the pretty girl who lived next door. Awesome. That's totally what I was going for. But is this image of the mad scientist as misguided as one of Dr. Strangelove's missiles? Or could it be that innovators who are ahead of their time are deemed mad by a narrow-minded public simply lacking in vision? No, Seth. Some of these guys were definitely strange, although probably not bent on world destruction. They called me mad. Genius, madness, and the scientist who pushed the outer limits of knowledge is John Monahan's book. There's a certain element of science and, you know, pushing those frontiers of knowledge that is intimidating for people. And so very often scientists get the reputation for being mad from the lay public. The other thing is that some of the the folks that I write about in my book were really so far ahead of their time um, that they really were pushing those envelopes and in many ways might have appeared to, to be mad. So they were just doing unusual things? Is that the... That's part of it. And it, it's kind of complex because, honestly, some of them did have sort of either personal quirks or, shall we say, brain differences that, that might have set them aside from normal society. Isaac Newton, if he were around today, he probably would have been diagnosed as being somewhere on the autism spectrum. Nikola Tesla almost certainly had obsessive-compulsive disorder. So a lot of them had these sort of brain differences, which contributed to their image of being mad, but it also might have helped them sort of see things from a slightly different perspective. Who would you say is history's first mad scientist? Well, in the book, I go all the way back to Archimedes. As a matter of fact, the first word in the book is Eureka, and that sort of sets the standard for that intellect getting that blinding flash of discovery or insight. And really, the, the myth or the legend of the mad scientist, a lot of people date it to Frankenstein and the writing of that in the early 1800s. But it really goes back further than that to legends of the mad alchemist or the mad wizards. Well, Archimedes, all right, uh, he was saying Eureka once he worked out this idea of how to determine whether a crown that the king had made was really pure gold or whether the goldsmith had alloyed it with something cheaper in there. Right. He sort of worked out, you know, the, the rules of buoyancy, but, but he also worked out a great approximation to the value of pi. Right. And actually, he had an amazing intellect, and he worked out a number of things. He did amazing work in mathematics. He did amazing work in engineering. He invented everything ranging from Archimedes screws and improved levers to engines of war and ways to defend the city. Tell me something about how he worked out the value of pi. I think that's kind of an interesting story because today, if you want the value of pi, you just hit a button on your pocket calculator. Right. It takes all the the mystery out of it. But again, Archimedes, he didn't really have those tools. So what he did is he had a formula for working out the perimeter of a figure, like, say, a triangle. So what he did is he drew a circle and then drew a triangle within the circle and calculated the perimeter of the circle, the perimeter of the triangle within it, and then figured the true value of pi would be somewhere between the two. And that gave a very, very rough approximation. Well, then he started adding more sides to the figure. Instead of a triangle, he went to a hexagon. So at that point, he's got six sides. That's getting him a little bit closer to the perimeter of the circle. 
And he would continue doing that, adding additional sides to that figure inside the circle until eventually he had a figure with 99 sides inside that circle. And from that, he was able to come up with an approximation of pi that's really very, very close to the number that you get by hitting that button on your calculator. He was fundamentally a mathematician, or at least that's yeah. the way he viewed himself, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he, he sort of viewed that as his great contribution, what he was most interested in and most proud of, and, you know, all those practical things. Well, tell me something about those practical things, because he may be better remembered by most people for his engineering than for his science. Absolutely. Per- particularly when the Romans were intent on taking his homeland. Archimedes was, after all, part of the Greek military-industrial complex, so he had a kind of a death ray defense, <laughs> too, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, let's face it. There is nothing that says mad scientist in the popular mind but the death ray. I mean, you know, that, that is sort of the essence of what makes you a mad scientist. And really, this has been sort of debated for centuries by everyone from Descartes to the Mythbusters. The legend is that he was able to take uh, brass shields the soldiers had and polish them so that they shone like mirrors and then arrange them sort of in a, a curved shape to form what's called a parabolic mirror to focus the rays of the sun on the ships. Now, the legend says that he was actually able to do that and make it intense enough to make the ships burst into fire. That is up for some debate. At the very least, though, focusing that light would certainly have blinded any of the archers that were trying to fire at the city from the ships. Let's move to some more modern mad scientists. I always think of Edison as being my personal hero, but I guess he wasn't really so much a scientist as a heavy-duty tinkerer and so forth. But there was a competitor to Edison, a guy from Eastern Europe that a lot of people haven't heard of. Tell me about that guy. Well, it's interesting. You know, we have the great image of Edison being, you know, that all-American inventor. Well, there was another fellow who came around named Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla, he was an immigrant. He was Serbian, and he came over to this country literally with the clothes on his back and a few pennies in his pocket. But his great insight was that he was a genius at coming up with inventions involving electricity. Edison at the time was very much involved with electricity and was promoting and actually selling direct current power. Tesla developed a system for producing alternating current. He created the first alternating current generators and AC motors. And essentially, he gave Edison his first major competition. And the two of them really went to war to see what was going to be the dominant type of current in this country. The war of the currents. Talk about current events. Well, obviously, Tesla won, because when I plug in my lamp over here into the wall, I'm getting AC, not DC. How did that happen? I mean, you know, why isn't it DC? Edison was trying to sell you DC. He had a generating plant in New York to do that for you. Right. Well, actually, what happens is that DC does have some advantages, but it runs into disadvantages if you're trying to transmit it over long distances. So Edison's solution was to string the city with these massive cables and create power stations every half mile or so. So obviously, that's A, very inconvenient, B, cost prohibitive, and C, you get the city basically draped with what looks like spider webs from all these cables. Tesla, by using alternating current, was able to use smaller cables, run them at higher currents and higher frequencies, and able to transmit his power more efficiently. Okay, so John, we use alternating current today, but you said earlier that Tesla had obsessive compulsive disorder. How so? I mean, did this contribute to his image as a mad scientist, or was it the rivalry with Edison that made him mad? 
Well, really, I think it was a combination of both, the two factors sort of coming together. He did have obsessive-compulsive disorder. He was obsessed, for instance, with the number three. He had a number of phobias about, like, touching human hair and things like that. So that gave him an air of being peculiar. Plus, Edison took advantage of that and played up the image very much of Tesla being this mad, uncontrolled genius or this mad, uncontrolled, mad scientist. Some scientists actually were mad in that they suffered from some, I don't know, genuine mental illness. Ignaz Semmelweis is one such case, and he discovered in the 19th century the importance of disinfectant. Why was that important, by the way? Well, he was really working in a a hospital where they noticed that they were having lots and lots of pregnant women dying in childbirth from these terrible fevers. And they couldn't figure out why it was going on, but they noticed that it was happening to the patients in the ward with the doctors, but not in the patients in the ward with the midwives. And it turns out that what the doctors had been doing, what Simoise discovered, is that the doctors had been doing autopsies and things like that and then performing internal examinations on their patients without washing their hands. And so they were literally infecting their patients. So he came up with this whole regime of hand washing as a way to prevent that infection. What happened to him? I mean, he was mentally ill, wasn't he? Uh, Yeah, actually, if you read accounts of his later life, he did seem to suffer from severe depression and had some some very bizarre behaviors. Now, some people say that he was crazy or was suffering from mental illness. Some say it was mental illness brought on by that struggle to prevent these deaths. But in any case, towards the end of his life, he had to be committed to a mental institution, an insane asylum. And that's actually where he died just a few weeks after he was committed. Turned out, by an odd coincidence, while he was in the, the mental institution, he was beaten by one of the guards And he ended up getting an infection and dying. And by coincidence, the infection that he died of was precisely the one that he was trying to prevent in his patients. If you wrote that up in a movie script, nobody would believe it. Absolutely. Well, John, as a scientist myself, I fear that the reason that I may not be a great scientist is because I'm not mad enough. (laughs) But I I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I've I've enjoyed it. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! They called John Monahan an author when he wrote, They Called Me Mad, Genius Madness and the Scientists Who Pushed the Outer Limits of Knowledge. Okay, it takes chutzpah to publicly claim that one of the most famous figures in all of history, not counting Marilyn Monroe or Joseph Pilates, is wrong. What is the value of pi? 3.14. I have no idea. 3.1529, I think. 3.1415. It's a transcendental number that starts with 3.1415. But the two is actually rounded up from one something. 3.1415265, a number that gives the ratio between the perimeter, that is the circumference, and the diameter of a circle. A number first calculated 2,500 years ago by none other than Archimedes, the genius you just heard about. A number for which each digit you could memorize beyond the first four would escalate your geek credentials, ensure that you would never date in high school, and guarantee you many hours of enjoyment in the geometry-slash-debate-slash-hall-monitor club. The idea is that whatever the size of the circle, the ratio of the circumference to the diameter remains the same, 3.1415, or pi. Well, why does this matter outside the hula hoop business? Because... 
Seth, why does it matter? Well, because it's simply one of the most fundamental relations of Euclidean geometry. And that's the kind of geometry that we use for just about everything we build. To question the utility of pi makes no more sense than to question the utility of being able to add and subtract. So who would have the daring to say that Archimedes had calculated the wrong number? This man, pi golly. Michael Hartle is a physicist who was inspired by the paper of a mathematician by name of Bob Pele, entitled Pi is Wrong. Pele argued that pi is an awkward convention and that the calculation of a circle's circumference should be relative to the radius, which is half the diameter, not the diameter itself. The correct convention, according to him, is to use the number tau, 6.2831 something something. And Hartle was so enthused by this idea that he launched a movement, some might say a pious one, to replace pi with tau once and for all. He even introduced tau day. Well, well, tell me, in what sense is it wrong? I mean, you know, I, I know people who've memorized the value of pi to n decimal places where n is a very large number. 3.14159265358. Yeah, I can go on for a while, too. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, I loved pi. So it was really shocking to discover that it's wrong. So it, it's wrong in the sense that uh, circles fundamentally are about their radii. So a circle is a set of all points a fixed distance, the radius, away from a given point, which is known as the center. And so if you look at the definition of pi, it's the ratio of a circle circumference to its diameter. Now, the diameter is twice the radius, so what you really have is the circumference to twice the radius, and that factor of two haunts you throughout all of mathematics and science. And so if you look at the different equations that people use in science and math, there, there are these factors of two that really don't make any sense. And so pi should have been defined as the ratio of the circumference to the radius, not, not the diameter. Well, thinking back on the equations that I use most frequently in my own work, it is true that 2 pi appears a lot more often than just a single pi or some other number in front of the pi. It, it does happen a lot. Uh, who, who's to blame for this? You say that they made the wrong choice. How long ago was that choice made? I think the choice of focusing on circumference to the diameter is, is really sort of lost in the mist of time. No one really knows when this idea took root. I think the origins ultimately lie in how easy it is to measure the diameter of a circular object compared to measuring the radius. You can measure the diameter quite easily. And it sort of became entrenched when Archimedes estimated the circle constant by coming up with an approximation for the circumference of the diameter. Although if you look at the proof, he actually at one point really is dealing with the circumference of the radius, and then there's a factor of two that creeps in. But the notation itself, the pi notation, really comes from Leonard Euler about 300 years ago. I think there is a mathematician named William Jones who introduced the notation, but Euler is the one who popularized it. Okay, so, so you want to essentially replace pi with two pi. But, That's right. But you're not going to call this new constant two pi. You're going to give it another name? So some people say, oh, we should just call it 2 pi. And the problem with that is that there are lots of places where you divide out by an even number, and then the 2 cancels. Or you can not cancel the 2. In fact, there actually is some evidence that several people have used 2 pi as its own constant. But it's really confusing because a right angle is 2 pi over 4 radians. And it would be weird to call it 2 pi over 4, though. It's, that's pi over 2. But now you've got a half pi being a quarter of a turn of a circle. And so... What you really want is a separate piece of notation for this idea. And the origin of, of my candidate is uh, from a terminology that Bob Pillay used, which is one turn for this constant. And so I started thinking about the sound t turn, the t sound. And I thought, well, we should, maybe we should use the letter tau. And it turns out that the word turn comes from the Greek word for lathe, which is tornos, which does start with the letter tau. And so this is how the tau manifesto was born. 
And uh, people have started celebrating the number pi on Pi Day on, on March 14. And so I, I launched this movement on Tau Day, June 28 in 2010. And uh, so you can read all about this at TauDay.com. Okay. All right. All right. So you launched Tau Day in June of 2010. Tau being now not 3.14159, whatever. It's now 6.28. etc. <laughs> okay. All right. Tau Day. So do you feel the momentum is building for Tau Day, for replacing Pi with Tau? The momentum is definitely building. A lot of people are excited about this. I paid attention to Twitter on Pi Day, and with the number of people saying disparaging things about Pi was, was uh, very gratifying and, and uh, made me optimistic for it, the future. It sounds like you have it in for Pi. We haven't gone into the detail here, but the facts are that if you were to replace 2Pi with, uh, with Tau, not only would this uh, reduce writer's cramp, but this would make a lot of high school and college mathematics considerably simpler. Yeah, it makes trigonometry so much easier. Like lots of relationships that are difficult or that require some sort of ad hoc memorization are transparent. So for example, um, a twelfth of the turn of a circle, if you think about what that is, people use degrees Degrees have never displaced radians in common usage. So a twelfth of a turn of a circle is the 30-degree angle, right? You have to think about what it is in terms of radians, but it's just tau over 12. Not only do you have this nice abstract meaning captured in the notation, tau over 12, a twelfth of a turn, but it's just a number. It's just 6.28 divided by 12. So all of trigonometry is, is much easier when written in terms of tau. All right. What's your outlook, Michael? I mean, this, this is radical. I'm sure Archimedes would be... Uh, Turning to use uh, <laughs> to use the Greek again, to, turning in his grave to hear that uh, Pi was uh, in uh, under threat. Do you think it's really under threat, or is this just something that you know a year from now will be an amusing story? You know, I think that I'm not sure. It's a way for people to out geek each other, because Pi is geeky. People advertise how geeky they are by wearing Pi shirts and so on, and so. Tau is twice as geeky as Pi. So this is a way for, for people to take things to the, the next level. And it has already succeeded in that sense. That I mean, I'll go to programming conferences and people will, will find out, like, oh, my God, you're the guy who wrote the Tau Manifesto? So it's, it's kind of fun that I sort of uh, you know, navigate back into my own wake uh, from, from this project. Whether it will become a real notation or not, I'm not sure. But in any case, the problem is real and it needs to be solved. It, some, the commenter on the, the social news site Hacker News, I think, put it best. He said, we need to fix this or everyone at the Galactic Congress is going to laugh at us. Well, now that's an argument I can get down <laughs> exactly. with. Exactly. Well, Michael Hartle, thank you so much for being with us. And I, I think that there's some chance that 2,500 years from now, you will be remembered, not for all the stuff you've done in life, <laughs> but for this. So thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Hartle is a physicist who apparently thinks he's smarter than Archimedes. Go figure. To 20 decimal places. Next, riding on a light beam, grains of sand on a beach, the greenhouse effect, and other poetic metaphors used to explain science. We're thinking outside the container that sports a quadrilateral shape on Big Picture Science. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, 
flat earth theory? And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Shakespeare can get away with using imaginative metaphor. Comparing a woman to a summer's day, for instance. Yeah, but who knows what that even means, Molly? I mean, it's so ambiguous. Some summer days are humid and sweaty, and when the pollen's up, my eyes water, I'm miserable. And then, then you've got your locusts. You can't get away comparing a woman to a shorthorn grasshopper. I mean, I've tried, and it's not appreciated. Now, scientific language endeavors to be precise, unadorned, and to the point. All the world is not a stage. Please. The world is a third planet from the sun with a mean radius of 6,371 kilometers, upon which humans exist and due to their complicated psychological nature, behave in unpredictable ways. Although, with the advances in neuroscience research, we are getting closer to predicting them. I have this graph over here if hey, you'd like. Seth, do you want to hear my favorite joke about a metaphor? It comes from an 11-year-old. Uh, yep, what? What's a metaphor? That's where cows graze. And that's where metaphors belong, in the pasture with the herbivores. Well, journalist James Geary thinks they belong in science, and he's written a book about how metaphor shapes how we see the world. Sometimes the best way to think about natural phenomena is to compare them to an idea we're familiar with. It sheds light on the subject. Okay, so when your understanding of science becomes more clouded than the windshield of a car trailing a truck spraying salt and goose feathers, then a good metaphor is like throwing a life raft to a barrel full of monkeys as the ship sinks, right? That's right. Okay, James, you've written a whole book about metaphor and how it influences the way we communicate and how we think. But, I mean, really, isn't this maybe turning a molehill into a mountain? <laughs> I don't think it is, but I really appreciate your use of a metaphor there. I think metaphor is essential whenever we try to communicate or understand something new. And I think that's true in our daily lives, in our, in our personal lives, in our business lives, our professional lives. And I think that's especially true in our scientific lives because science deals with unknowns and new discoveries, by definition, are unknowns and unfamiliar territory, unmapped terrain. See, I'm just using all the metaphors already. So a very basic and simple example would be comparing an atom to a solar system. People know how a solar system works and an atom works roughly the same way. It's not an exact match. But using an analogy, which is just another form of metaphor, is crucial to conveying you know, the novelty of that discovery. Well, I want to get into how metaphors operate in science, because as you point out, that's obviously an area where you wouldn't expect a metaphor, because metaphors are not always precise. They're sort of verbal shortcuts. I mean, when we say stock prices are on a roller coaster ride, we don't generally mean that the NASDAQ listings have gone down to Coney Island and are riding the cyclone, <laughs> sticking their hands in the air, screaming a lot. But those four words, on a roller coaster ride, convey a whole lot of information. I mean, they provide us with a picture of what's happening. So it's just a shortcut, shorthand, right? Absolutely, it's a shortcut. But I would dispute what you said earlier that they are not precise because you just used a very, very common metaphor, a cliche, and then you went on to describe very vividly and precisely the image it evokes in your mind. And I think this is the marvel of metaphor. Metaphors can very, very precisely describe what something is by describing what it's not. And metaphors have very powerful, uh, though subtle, influences on how we think and what we do. 
just to stick with financial metaphors, when stock prices are described as soaring, climbing and rising, those are all metaphors of living things. And studies have been done that show that people exposed to these kind of metaphors have greater expectations that the price rises will continue because they associate unconsciously in their minds, they associate the price rise with these metaphors of living things. And if price movements are living things, then they can continue to rise because they have, they have their own willpower. We're talking about metaphors in science here. You mentioned that scientists, you know, use metaphors all the time, but you would think that in the interests of precision, they wouldn't use metaphors. They'd be the one group of people that wouldn't use them. That's right. You would think that. But many, many scientists, all of the great scientists talk about, they don't necessarily use the word metaphor. Einstein, for example, uh, when he was asked how did he, um, you know, come across his greatest discoveries, he used the phrase combinatory play. And he was not talking about words. And I should point out that I, when I say metaphor, it's not just linguistics that we're talking about. There are visual metaphors. The whole analogical reasoning is a form of metaphor where you're comparing one thing with another. And Einstein's, you know, how did he do it? He did it through thought experiments, which are very, very elaborate metaphors or analogies. And he used the phrase combinatory play. And I think um, that's what scientists do. They come across something that they know, they come across something that they don't know, and to try and figure out what they don't know, they play with the things that they know. You mentioned Einstein, James, but I can't bring to mind any metaphors that I associate with Einstein. The, the phrase combinatory play is a metaphor in itself because it equates the process of scientific discovery with play. And the way that Einstein put that into practice is through a metaphorical analogy like what would it be like riding on a light beam. And that's how he was able to conceive of and think about his theories and, and the theory of relativity and things like that. He, he did that when he was on a tram somewhere in Europe, right? I mean, he was... Exactly. And that's, perfect. that's a perfect example of how something that is in your environment, coincidentally, uh, riding on a tram or a train, sparks an analogy, thinking, well, what if I were actually riding on a light beam instead of a tram? And notice in your book you mentioned Robert Hooke, who nearly four centuries ago looked at plants through a microscope and described them as being made up of cells, an obvious analogy to the rooms and monasteries in which monks lived. Uh, what, are, what are some modern metaphors or analogies that are used by scientists that, uh, you know, once again, we've, we've even lost the context? Well, I think a very good example today is the metaphors we use for the brain or the mind. So a couple thousand years ago, the mind was a blank slate. Um, then it was a sort of piece of wax. And then in the, in the 1950s, as uh, computer technology became more, more popular, it was a computer. And now the reigning metaphor for how the brain works is a rainforest. So I think this is really interesting to see how not only do the current technology or current you know, political issues influence which metaphors are chosen to describe how we come to look at the brain and regard the brain, but also those metaphors shape our investigations into the brain. If you think of the brain as a computer, you will have a different idea and different ideas for experiments than if you regard the brain as a rainforest. You say, like a rainforest, and I'm thinking my brain is being burned away, and it's filled, <laughs> filled, filled with wild beasts. What, what do you mean by the brain is a rainforest? I hadn't heard that. Uh, the brain is a rainforest in that the, the connections are, are not necessarily linear, that if one brain area is damaged, another brain area can take over. It's all a big mass of sort of, you know, seething uh, tendrils and, and um, twisting roots and, and vines. And it's not the sort of straight lines New York City grid structure of a computer chip. Well, I will admit that my brain is, it's a really a jungle in there. Maybe, maybe there are wild beasts in there, too. I, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of such 
uh, modern science topics as, for example, the greenhouse effect. Well, that's clearly an analogy to greenhouses. I mean, nobody's built an actual greenhouse around the earth or, or even string theory. Exactly. String theory is, is a wonderful example because we have to imagine the universe as an 11-dimensional thing that is made up of all these vibrating strings. And I think that's a really good example of how a metaphor can mislead also. It can give you the, the wrong idea. But especially for topics like you know quantum physics and string theory and things like that, these theories, these ideas, the, the, the way we think reality is, is so far removed from our daily experience, so far removed from anything that we can have any direct knowledge of, that the metaphors become necessarily more and more outlandish. And I think it's crucial that the scientists themselves, at some point, they go beyond the metaphor and they deal with the thing itself. Well, I can understand that the word string theory conveys indeed the idea of these tiny little strings, and it isn't quite that simple. Indeed, it's almost never quite that simple. Do these metaphors actually ever get us in trouble in science? I think they can. In politics, they can give people the wrong idea. Like, like a phrase like the greenhouse effect, I think you know, not many people have direct experience with greenhouses anymore. And it all kind of creates an impression of a nice warm place where plants live or, or global warming, for, for example, suggests uh, a gentle and, you know, maybe even uh, largely pleasant uh, development. So the metaphors that are chosen to describe scientific issues like climate change really, really matter in terms of public discourse because one metaphor can create a sense of uh, complacency, and another metaphor can create uh, a sense of concern. Yeah, I, I often say the number of stars in the visible universe is equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches of the Earth. It's somewhat misleading because they think, well, we're cheek by jowl with all those other, <laughs> other solar Exactly. Isn't... So the detail of that metaphor is probably wrong, but the general idea, I understand that perfectly. I understand perfectly what you want to convey, that there are a hell of a lot of stars out there and we're just one tiny speck. And I think that's, you know, in that case, that's the thing you want to convey. Who, in your opinion, was the most poetic scientist with regard to using metaphor? Oh, I think it had to be, it has to be Richard Feynman. He is so, the way he describes, especially things like quantum physics, which are so abstract, I think it was he was describing an, an atom or some molecule or something like that, and he described it as a, a crowd that you would see at a football game, but seen from an airplane, just like this mass of swarming ants. And he takes very, very abstract, very, very difficult ideas and finds exactly the right image, exactly the right metaphor to convey it. And you feel, after reading one of his uh, lectures or listening to one of his lectures, you feel like you understand this stuff. Yeah, I think that was a drop of water he was describing. Is That's it? it. It was a drop of water. Teeming crowd, it. yeah. Have we always used metaphors? Did Julius Caesar write metaphorically? Absolutely. Metaphor has been there from the very beginning of human civilization. And in fact, certain primates can use metaphors. Certain types of bonobo, for example, that have been taught to use visual symbols that correspond to words, they can make metaphors. One, for example, described as a duck by putting together the symbols for water and bird. And that's a metaphor. A duck is a water bird. So from an evolutionary perspective, the metaphor-making ability of our minds is very, very, very ancient. And it's also present in newborn children as well. So what's crucial there is that it's not just a matter of language because human infants are able to mix and match and engage in combinatory play like Einstein did well before they learned to speak. Well, James Gary, thank you so much for being with us, even though uh, that's only a metaphorical being with us. <laughs> thank you, Seth. It was a pleasure.
James Geary is the author of I is an Other, The Secret Life of Metaphor and How It Shapes the Way We See the World. Cosmology abounds with metaphor. Dark matter, dark energy, the Big Bang, all imprecise descriptions of phenomena, yes, but how else can we wrap our minds, another weird metaphor, around some of the strangest goings-on in the universe? Even scientists who are experts in these fields have a hard time doing so. And that brings us back to the story of dark matter. If you remember earlier in the show, journalist Anil Ananthaswamy said the ingenuity of astronomers a half-century ago revealed the existence of this strange substance making up 25% of the universe— But the problem didn't end there. Because no one has found out exactly what dark matter is. Gas clouds, dust, planets, dead stars, all the stuff that doesn't shine, it's all been taken into account in the search for dark matter. No dice. Then another puzzle appears. Enter dark energy. 70% of the universe. This strange force is blowing the cosmos apart. But what is it? Who knows? Dark energy, dark matter. What will it take to answer the biggest mysteries of the cosmos? So this problem of dark energy, dark matter, and a few other very important problems in physics seem to be pointing towards some sort of breakthrough that would need to happen in order for us to really be able to answer some of these questions. It's going to take some sort of, you know, literally out-of-the-box thinking to give us a clue as to the nature of these mysteries. Because the universe might be, and it's probably stranger than we think it is. And at every stage in the evolution of our understanding of the universe, the cosmos has turned out to be stranger than our beliefs at the time. There's no reason to expect that it's going to stop surprising us. Thanks to the original minds of our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance, and volunteer, Jay Weiler. Also, support from Sammy David and Rena Shulsky David. See, usually I say them the other way around. The SETI Institute and, wait for it, the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of stations that carry the program. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.